You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Literature Corner. And today my guest is excellent South African and world-class playwright and novelist Craig Higginson. We're going to be talking about a really, really beautifully crafted book of his, the latest, The Book of Gifts, which I have already recommended you read. You obviously can't go out and buy it in a time of physical distancing and non-essential services, uh, but I hope you are able to find at least an e-copy online. And when you do get a chance to get a physical copy, please go and get a copy. It is absolutely gorgeous. Craig joins me now um, and for the next little while. If you want to be part of the conversation, if you're a fan of his work in general, you've got questions for him, if you picked up this particular book, feel free to be part of the conversation by dialing in on 011-883-0702. Otherwise, just tweet us questions you might have for Craig or your impressions of the book if you have read it. Craig, good morning. Good morning, Eustiva. Thanks for having me on your show. It's only a pleasure. Um, writing is a labor of love. Congratulations on yet another excellent one. And when you've had so much success already, the pressure is on because your publishers always want to be able to say on the jacket, this is truly the best yet. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I mean, I mean, thanks for your for your kind words. I mean, each time you try and improve on, on what you did before and, um, you know, it, it gets, it gets, I suppose, more complicated. But, um, yeah, I mean, I do feel that each time I, I, I certainly grow. And, um, I think this feels to me like my most kind of adult novel to date. I think probably because I wrote it, you know, after I'd had a kid and I was sort of writing from the perspective of a parent for the first time, which I think made a, made a kind of shift in my writing with my point of view somewhere. That's partly what I was liking. I was saying to my listeners at 9 o'clock when I was throwing ahead to this conversation that there are one or two Netflix series I'm watching at the moment uh, in which teenagers are very important protagonists, and we'll come to Julian in a minute or three. Mm. And with excellent script writing and the same with novel writing, if we don't banalize or infantilize teenagers and children – they can really be, as they should be, incredibly important human beings, including as part of a cast of characters. And then in terms of the dynamic, the dynamic between adults and children and adults and teenagers can also be fascinating. But before we get into those issues, um, let's give a basic introduction to my listeners for those who haven't yet picked up the book, uh, to the wonderful family whose relationships in a very patient but not boring way you slowly unravel in this novel julian emma jennifer andrew uh, essentially mm. who are these characters and uh, tell us the family setup so you know the novel sort of takes place in umschlanger rocks when julian's around 11 and then it fast forwards to joburg when he's about 14 or 15 and um so there are these two sort of narrative threads really and julian is the kind of opaque space in the middle of the novel. He, he's, he's not really the protagonist, I don't think. I think the protagonist is probably his mom, Emma. Mm. But it's about these three adults who are, who are kind of circling this kid or, or he's sort of situated in the, in the sort of electric force field between these three places. And um, so it's Emma, his mom, Jennifer, his aunt, and Andrew, who is married to Jennifer, so it's his uncle. 
Mm. Um, and the novel is full of sort of triangles going off in lots and lots of different directions. Um, and it's essentially a kind of an, a sort of Oedipal investigation on one level. And Oedipal stuff, I'm told by psychotherapists, is all about triangles and, and the imagined third and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, so it's what, the sort of architecture of adults that he has to negotiate and situate himself in. And then the novel yeah. is fundamentally then the story of the relationship between these characters and some more minor characters. And in mm. the process, there are all these themes, some of which you've alluded to, that come out. Let's talk a little bit about Emma and Jennifer. I mean, here mm. you have two half-sisters. They're very different. Mm. Uh, mm. One a sculptor, one who teaches. And mm. they have very different relationships and recollections of their hybrid mm. families of when when they when they grew up one one in mm. my hometown of Grangetown and the okay. the other one other one in Jersey describe Emma and Jennifer a little bit to to my listeners and uh, yeah, okay. and this interesting relationship be- be- between them because they have strengths and vulnerabilities and they they are really fully human in in, in all sorts of ways and the relationship mm. in turn between them is really really fascinating yeah, I suppose one of the things the novel is doing is looking at how wounds that are that are made in childhood can have ripples and resonances across your life and into adulthood. And you know, I think that the father figure, who well, the literal father, who, who Emma and Jennifer kind of competed over when they were little, and Jennifer always felt that she was the less loved and the you know the less special, and Emma was the beautiful one who got all the boys and got everything that she ever wanted. She was the gifted one, and Emma sort of grew up in her shadow, even though she was slightly older. You know, she was slightly older than, than Emma. Um, and I mean, what the novel's doing is it's exploring all these sort of Freudian concepts. I mean, I, I've had no training in psychoanalysis, but I'm kind of very interested in all these things. And um, you know, one of the one of the, the the sort of threads that the novel is exploring is this. The thing that, that Freud called the death drive, which is a very problematic and much debated theory. But mm. um, I think that we can all kind of relate to those members in our family who always just seem to interpret it for the worst. And you know what I mean? Always, yes. always kind of bring out the worst in everything. And, you know, when someone, <laughs> uh, there's an act of kindness from someone, she, that person's always sort of suspecting it and turning it into something else. And, so Jennifer's that character in the family is sort of this embodiment of, of the death drive in a way, but then that hopefully gets a bit deconstructed and we see that she's a bit more complex than just being a, a cipher for a kind of psychoanalytic idea. Um, I mean, a lot of what I do is I sort of set up a genre or, or, or types or archetypes and then I, I kind of deconstruct them during the course of the novel and, and restore characters to their humanity and the complexity of what it is to be human. Mm. Um, and I think I'm trying to do that with Jennifer and Emma. Mm. So it sort of looks like their relationship means one thing, but, but you know, hopefully we see there's surprises along. Yeah, lots of surprises, yeah. and the surprises are are beautifully timed because you read the novel and you you kind of feel like, okay, I'm reading a novel that I could imagine also being transposed into a beautiful uh, television series of some form because mm. it's fundamentally about relations, but. Uh, like to take the analogy of, of script writing, of screenwriting, there are some good cliffhangers that come out of nowhere at the, at the end of some of the chapters. But I want to read yeah. one scene and I want us to discuss um, parenting for a minute or two. So this is a, a, a random scene that I'm going to read from where Emma 
is um, picking up Julian and the conversation between them that unfolds. And I'll read a little bit from page 56 of this book, uh, The Book of Gifts by Craig Higginson, who is our guest this hour. Uh, Julian is flicking through a woman's magazine and he looks surprisingly bereft. But what was Emma expecting? For years, she has been pushing Julian and Andrew together. A game of tennis year, a walk in the park with Andrew's Labradors there. And yet, they have always remained formal and detached, putting on a brave face as soon as she came to check on their progress. Some people are simply incompatible, she supposes, which is disheartening, since she gets on so well with them both. Only when she pushes back the glass door to the waiting area does Julian look up. Julian's skin is paler than usual, his eyes darker, but perhaps this is only because of the dyed hair. When he sees her, his expression remains decidedly unchanged, as if he decided even before she entered the room that he would not change it. Hello, Boo. Are we done with Uncle Andrew? Yes, we're done. It is devastating the way a boy disappears around the age of 14. I love this paragraph, by the way. Um, One minute he is your permanent chattering companion who wants you to bear witness to every word he learns to spell. Every dive he performs at the swimming pool. Every insult he negotiates at school. The next, he has shut the door to his bedroom in order to harbor an elaborate list of secret thoughts, each one of which seems designed to exclude you. Where's Uncle Andrew? In there with someone, he says, with a motion of his head. I see. He said I'll phone you later. Right. Julian still hasn't stood to join her. He is sitting there as if it hasn't yet occurred to him to move. Why don't you go up to the house? I didn't feel like it. Did Auntie Jen go out? I have no idea. Emma knows she shouldn't pry into what Julian and Andrew talked about. She ought to wait until Julian is ready to talk. But will he ever be ready to talk? We've got the dress rehearsal at four o'clock. And the show starts at eight. He nods. I need to go straight back to school. But aren't you hungry? I had a sandwich with Auntie Jen. How about some sushi on the way? If you like. Now, it's... I mean, what I really admire about your writing, Craig, is that there's a there's a su- simplicity and fluidity that is that is incredible, because beneath it there is incredible depth. That scene is such a simple scene, but being already familiar with the characters, you know how much Emma is struggling with two different aspects of mm. her own being. The creator who sculpts and the person who created a whole baby. And in a sense, part of her journey is to see whether she can be competent at both of those roles. And that relationship with the boy, with this teenager, is a, is a tough one, isn't it? Because in a sense, she also experiences it as a kind of referendum on her competency as mom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's something that any parent who, who, who works can relate to. I mean, I think it's maybe more extreme with creative people where when you go into a kind of a zone, you know, Emma's a sculptor and when she's preparing for an exhibition, she has to be quite un- uncompromising, quite focused, do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and she, she kind of abandons Judith every time she does that, knowing that her, her sister Jennifer's there to kind of pick up the pieces and be a kind of stand-in parent. And then when she comes back, she sort of overcompensates for her absence. Do you know what I mean? And I think a lot of parents can relate to that. 
Um, and because it's a balancing act, it's basically impossible to be a parent, I think. Because no matter what you do, you know, you're going to get it wrong. Um, mm. But, you know, I suppose one of the, the lessons of the novel is, is also encouraging people to let other people be. Mm. You, know, to, you know, to let your children be your children be themselves. Mm. You know, we, we're living in this, this quite endangered space, particularly no, no, no more so now than now with the whole coronavirus. Where, we, where there's a sort of this expectation of danger always comes from the outside. And, you know, we want to sort of protect those we love, so we want to sort of create a kind of fence around them. But, but when does that fence become a cage? Do you know what I mean? When does it mm. become something that entraps them? Um, and one of the ironies of the novel is that, you know, is that Emma's constantly fearing what's going on outside the house. You know, the, the novel's sort of haunted by refugees and beggars at traffic lights and at one point, she has a sort of psychotic interlude and runs into the city, and she's surrounded by these people speaking Shona and Swahili. And she thinks they're kind of the threat, but actually they're just trying to help her. Yeah. And what she realizes by the end of the novel is that actual, the actual danger within the family, within the home, and the danger is not out there. You know Absolutely. What I mean? actually Absolutely. I want to move to a different theme. I, I think the beautiful, the another really beautiful theme in the in the in in the novel is how it explores truth deceit and it reminded me of a <laughs> an opening quote in a very successful south african television series intersections that starts with a quote our lives intersect in mysterious ways we are tied together by the secrets we keep but open to the harm that secrets bring and it's such a fantastic quote. And when I think about that quote, I think about how much the relationship between the adults in the novel, and it's not to judge them morally, because it's also just presenting their full humanity, how much each of them grapple with, can I really afford, and what will be the cost of doing so, of being my complete authentic self, yeah. With every single person that I interact with in the in in the world, and and yeah. and it's in, that's an interesting space, isn't it? Because we ordinarily think lying, deceit, are obviously wrong, but but mm. the truth of the matter is, and, and and a good novelist like yourself can explore it in ways that are rich and beautiful, is that when you understand the interior landscape of the person that is withholding information from someone else, then suddenly we are. In all sorts of grey areas. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the themes that I think runs through my writing is that you know, can we ever know anyone? There's this wonderful Margaret Atwood quote that I love, which is that there's not one of anyone. You know, that we're many people to ourselves and each other. We have many roles to you know to play in life. You know, we're, you're a brother and you're a son and you're a friend and you you know you're all these different things and, and those all bring out different aspects of you. Um, and one of the things the novel's exploring is, you know, we've, we've heard since Aristotle that we judge characters through actions. So you can't be considered a courageous person if you call yourself courageous. You can only be considered courageous if you act courageously. Um, yes. You know, but, but if we don't know what someone's motives are, how, do we, how can we judge them through their actions? You know, a, a car person can mm. perform courageous action or evil. I mean, I don't believe in evil, but a, 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 a person with ill intentions could could perform an act of goodness to disguise their, their real intentions. Mm. Um, you know, Julian falls off this chapel tower at school, and we don't know if he fell or if he jumped or if he slipped or if he was pushed or, you know, what happened. Mm. 
So how are we to judge him and who he is through this action, this mm-hmm. one very dramatic event? And that's in a way what the novel is exploring. It goes backwards in time, trying to find the ever elusive causality for this event mm-hmm. and what it is. You know, was he happy or unhappy? You know, as a parent, you know, how's the, how's the mother supposed to judge this action? And how does that affect the meaning of their relationship? Um, you know, so it's exploring all those kinds of those kinds of things. Yeah. You know. Why did parenting interest interest you so much? For example, I mean, that, that that's another interesting sort of difference between the sisters. The one who gives birth to this boy isn't necessarily mm. the one that, in at least particularly initially, has the most um, bonding with him on a psychosocial level. Auntie Jen, he is closer to. Uh, unbeknownst to him, she also had propped up some some lies, uh, which mm. one can analyze ethically. Um, but it, but it's really interesting. Clearly, the the one of the things that you you wanted to explore, whether explicit or inadvertent, once the writing process started, is also not just on the case of Emma, whether or not her creation called Julian is one that you can nurture, but on the part of Jen whether Jen in turn can come to terms with struggling to fall pregnant, which is a reality for many couples. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose this is the, the, the novel of mine that's most centered on family and parenting in a way that I don't think any of the others has been. Mm. Um, and I think family is a kind of interesting site for exploration. Mm. Um, you know, that's, there's something fundamental about the mother and the father. Yeah. And, and we all have parents or, or substitute parents or carers or, you know, people trying to fill these roles. Um, and, you know, we live in a very complex society. So that this whole idea of the kind of mother and the father in the nuclear family just doesn't exist, you know. And, and it's, but, but we have these sort of expectations that, you know, that, that, that these things do exist somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I suppose one of the novel, one of the, things I'm trying to look at is this thing that Freud called the unholy exchange, which is the handing of one handing over of one forbidden thing in order to get another forbidden thing. Mm. Uh, it comes from his Dora case where uh, someone was having an affair um, and they had a daughter and I think it was a father who was young. Yeah, the father was having an affair with this married woman and he was also married and a sort of unconscious Sub, uh, sort of compensation, he he allowed the jilted husband to have an affair with his daughter, mm. and, and 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 this girl Dora was completely traumatized by this whole experience. Mm. It's called this unholy exchange. So the book of gifts, you know, the, 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 in a way, the main the, maybe the main metaphor running through the novel is, is the metaphor of gift giving and gift receiving. Yes, and and what why we do it, what our motives are, um, and Jennifer's you know, involved in all of that. Um, I want to yeah, explore. I, mean, I think, I yeah, think what we ahead. often do as children is sort of fixate on the things that we weren't given. Mm. You know, and we're given thousands of things by our parents or our carers. But that one thing that we lack is the thing we then fixate on and give give all this importance to. Um, yeah. Sorry, what were you going to ask? Now, I want to explore two last things. One around the writing process and and how one sort of constructs a novel. This delicate and complex at the same time despite its fluidity it's got enormous complexity which is a wonderful gift to us as 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 readers uh that we don't have to struggle to read it and yet at the same time it's the <laughs> it's the kind of novel that is <laughs> that is really fantastic for teaching it will uh, allow few 
kids to fail, but it will also allow your A students to distinguish themselves uh, if they really get all the layers. So it's really it's it, it's going to travel in all sorts of ways. But what I wanted to ask you um, in exactly that regard is you clearly, as part of your research and your own intellectual interest, have a deep interest in questions of psychology, literature, and philosophy. How did you go about and how do you go about and give advice now to aspiring writers as well um, to construct yeah. the story in such a way that it has it flows quite easily and the storytelling is superb, the character development, even though the careful and curious reader will be able to see the deeper philosophical, literarily framed as well as psychology-related questions that you are exploring. Mm. Other than when Uncle Andrew speaks directly about being an analyst, you are not mm. didactic about these philosophical mm. questions, and thank God for that. So, mm. so speak to us about that from a writing process point of view. Well, just one piece of advice for writers, I think, is if you want to be a writer, don't just study literature, study history, study philosophy, study politics. You know, so that when you do want to write, you've got stuff to write about. Um, and then the other thing is that I think that we don't give ourselves the opportunity to explore what we already know. I mean, I, I've taught writing for some years. Mm. And um, it's a story I sometimes tell to my, my students is, is when I was working in a bookshop in London. <laughs> and this old chap came and bought a book. And I looked at his credit card and it said Peter Schaeffer. <laughs> so I said, you're not the Peter Schaeffer who wrote Equus and... And Amadeus, are you? He said, no, yes, he is. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we talked for like half an hour about his writing post at Equus. Mm. And he said that, you know, he was driving with a friend through the countryside in England. Mm. And the friend said, oh, nearby there was this boy who was working at these stables. And one day he blinded all these horses. It was just this terrible story. So Peter Schaefer went home and he didn't try and research it or look, look, look up the story in the newspaper to find out what actually happened. He just asked himself the question, why would someone who works with horses, who obviously loves horses, why would he suddenly want to blind a whole lot of horses? Yes. And so he wrote this extraordinary play, Equus. Um, and he said that he knew absolutely nothing about psychoanalysis or psychotherapy or anything before writing it. And he just wrote what he thought they would say. Mm. And then when he'd written a good first draft, he shared it with a whole lot of psychologists. And they said he'd got about 80% of it right and 20% of it wrong. So he changed that 20%. Hmm. And so I think that, you know, it's very important for us to give ourselves the space to imagine and, and, to, and to explore what, what we actually already carry without being That's conscious right. of it. But if we research too much, initially we have the, there's a sort of danger of reproducing the already written yes. in a kind of edited form, yeah. you know, and, and repeating, repeating that. And um, so, you know, for me, I, I write lots of drafts. And, 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 and each time I have a simple task in mind when I'm writing a draft, mm. initially I'm just trying to find the story and, and the structure. Mm. And then the scenes and those sort of things get filtered in gradually mm. through. Um, mm. And I often actually retype the whole novel back into the computer. So I print out the manuscript, make notes in the manuscript, and then I retype the whole thing. And I'll, hmm. I'll do that at least once, probably twice. Mm. And with plays, I'll do that a lot. Mm. Like 25 times, 30 times. That's amazing. Because each time you, you are re-experiencing the story in a way that the reader might or the audience might. Mm. And every word and phrase has to re-earn its way back into the mm. thing. Whereas if, otherwise you're just editing essentially and it's very hard to kind of fundamentally rewrite. That's right, yeah. And So when you retype into the computer, a lot of stuff just organically and effortlessly just falls away. Mm. 
and you don't have to cut it, you know, and you feel like you've killed your baby kind of thing. It just, <laughs> it, it just, it just feels it sheds itself naturally. Well, speaking um, of killing... I'm to write, sorry, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to write... Um, uh, stories where there's something for everyone that you can just read the story mm. and just be entertained or mm. if you want to dig further there is absolutely stuff there that you can explore and i think that's one of the most important achievements of this novel i'm going to put you on hold if i can i'm going to try and cajole you into five more minutes with me because i want you to okay. read one of the more dramatically important parts of of the novel um, there's a lot we haven't given away, but I think we've piqued enough curiosity for people to go and buy the book, and then we can come back to it. Um, again, I'd love to engage you further um, right. once once more people have had an opportunity to read it. Um, so I'll just put you on hold for a minute, if you don't mind, Craig. The Literature Corner. Indeed, it is the Literature Corner, and we are finishing off a conversation with Craig Higginson about his latest creative work, The Book of Gifts, which is absolutely beautiful. I love Julian for many reasons. A, because I am often myself anti-establishment in many ways. And B, um, he reminded me of a little boy, not that little, when I was in matric, who was in grade eight or standard six back then. Um, I was the editor of The Chronicle, which was student magazine at Graham College. And I used to get so much flack because I would publish poetry in it from this boy who's I actually want to write an essay on. And he used to write the kind of essays that Julian writes, and it disturbed many of the teachers who didn't want me to publish it. And, of course, being as scrawny and quiet as I was back then when I was still quiet, I just refused to be bullied by the teachers because I thought it's important to give creative children with imaginations that shock adults the space to be able to do so and and i think julian does that so it's amazing when I, julian for me had a counterpoint in my own life thinking back to this the standard six boy that latched on to me as a matriculant that can keep him safe from the bullying he was experiencing mm. with that said mm. you're going to read for us and we won't give them any context about okay. where this fits in and let them go and find out by buying the book so um, I'll just read, read out the sec- section that you're alluding to. Yes. It was long after midnight, but the whole house was lit up like a scene under a street lamp. David didn't feel much as he stood in front of the front garden and watched the flames take down his family's house. He knew the fire had started in his mother's bedroom from her bed because he was the one who started it. Since his mother's death, David didn't like going into her room, with the smell of her like herbs everywhere. When she was still alive, the doctors had taken away each of her breasts and all of her hair, but it made no difference because everything that was left of her body died anyway. Now the only evidence that she ever lived was David himself, and her clothes in the cupboard, and her two cats, which still looked for her in every corner of the house and the photographs which his father only displayed in the exit hall downstairs so that visitors would think that he still loved her. David couldn't remember what his mother looked like anymore, and he couldn't remember her voice. Only the feel of her stayed with him, like an electric current all around him, which pulled him downwards like he was falling back forever towards a grave. His dad was at a party with his new girlfriend when David decided to burn down the house. Their house stood on top of a hill, 
and when his dad came home, it was to find the air around the house alight. David and the babysitter were standing in the garden by the pool, the two cats threading themselves between their legs, when his father pulled up. David was busy wondering where they'd live now that there was no house, and he hoped it would be somewhere near the sea. When David saw his dad coming towards him, he looked like someone else's dad. His dad was calling out his name, even though David was standing there right in front of him. It was only when his dad ran straight through him, like he was made of nothing more than air, that David understood that he was dead, and that his body was still up there, burning like a black candle somewhere inside the house. So, Craig, congratulations and thank you. Thanks, you see, it was a great pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. That's Craig Higginson reading from his stunning, stunning book, The Book of Gifts.